Good morning once again, church. Please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, that's plural, and then uh, in Psalms, I'll try to find Psalm number two, Psalm singular. I don't know if you, I always kind of get a little bit tripped up with this. Is it Psalms? Is it Psalm? So Psalms is the book, the Psalm is the chapter. So turn to Psalm two. We're going to be preaching uh, that this morning. It is very good to be back in the pulpit this morning. I always appreciate, you know, when I preached four, five, six sermons in a row, to have a Sunday off to kind of rest, rest and refuel. And you don't want Pastor Mike preaching without any of uh, those times off because I need that to kind of intake more and just rest in the Lord so I can have more to pour out. But when I get uh, two Sundays off like I did when we were in Guatemala the last two weeks, I'm like, raring to go. Like, all right, let's get back into it. And so I'm so excited for what the Lord is going to do in our time together this morning. We had an amazing trip to Guatemala. I do want to thank Pastor Jerry and Pastor David for preaching uh, while I was away. Uh, Really an amazing trip. And from everything I've heard from the Minneapolis team, other than getting there, which they had some trouble with that, and you'll probably hear more about that uh, later, but other than getting there, they've had an amazing time as well. And next week, the Minneapolis team actually doesn't know this yet, but next week we're going to have a time to hear what God did on both of these trips. So we're going to take next week to have a little bit of a trip report where people are going to share testimonies of what God's been working in their hearts through the things that they saw on their trip. And that's why we do trip reports. It's not just so you can see a bunch of like pictures like you show somebody on your vacation and say, yeah, this is what we did. It's, it's more important than that. It's to hear what God is doing and how he's been working in the hearts of people in our church and praying that the Lord uses that to work in your hearts as well. So that's going to be next week. Uh, I'm very excited about that, um, but I'm also excited to be in Psalm 2 this morning. So please bow your heads and pray with me, and then we will jump in. Well, Heavenly Father God, um, you are so good, and we just pray, um, just like Pastor David prayed, um, that you would use this morning to enlarge our hearts and our eyes about who you are, God. You've done that through our time of worship, through singing this morning, and now we just pray and ask that you would do that through our time of worship, through the preaching of your word. So help me uh, guard my tongue and uh, give me just the boldness to preach uh, your word as you called me to preach it and open up our hearts through the Holy Spirit to receive what you want us to receive. And we pray all these things in the precious and wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. The book of Psalms, as we're uh, preaching, spending some time preaching selected psalms this summer, the book of Psalms is a book that teaches us how to worship God. Now, there's some challenges in preaching the psalms, and Pastor Jerry touched on these a couple weeks ago. One of the challenges is that you're actually preaching poetry, you're preaching poetry. And so as we look at the Psalms, we're, they're not only conveying truths to us, which they are conveying truths to us about who God is, but the words aren't only communicating truths. They're also evoking emotions that we're supposed to have along with those truths. Now, Pastor David did a fantastic job, if you were here last week, conveying the emotion of Psalm 103, right? Psalm 103 is a psalm that uh, calls us to see uh, just the majestic awesomeness of God. And David, that emotion certainly came across. He got some air on this podium, I think, uh, last week. That emotion certainly came across as he preached it. But when you're preaching the psalms, you want to not only communicate the truth, but, but, uh, but capture the beauty capture the beauty. 
It'd be like, so uh, if, if you miss that when you preach the Psalms, it'd be like if someone went on vacation to like the Grand Canyon or somewhere beautiful and you like, hey, how was your trip? And they're like, oh man, it was amazing. The maps that we had were like spot on accurate. They really helped us to navigate. And we stayed on our schedule the whole entire time. We didn't get off schedule once. It was the best trip I've ever had, right? That's not really the point, is it? I mean, you want to have an accurate map so you don't get lost, and you want to, you know, stay on schedule, I guess. But if you go to the Grand Canyon and, if you, and you miss the beauty, right, you've missed out entirely. The beauty is the point. Now, if we just come to the Psalms and we say, okay, what are my three application points that I can get from this Psalm uh, right now? Well, you're, again, you're kind of missing the point of the Psalm because in the Psalms, the beauty is the point, and we see beauty that conveys a lot of emotions from things like just standing in awe of who God is, like we saw last week, all the way to Psalms of Lament, which really um, give us the emotion to bring to God the most absolute difficult things that our hearts can possibly carry in this life, and everything in between. And so we want to make sure we capture that. So we have some, like, who are my, raise your hand, Loud and proud if you're like our artsy people in the church. You're like, finally, we're getting some. Are there anybody? We have like, okay, like four. Okay, thank you, Jerry. So somebody's bold enough to say it. Uh, so for, for you, you're like, yes, finally. And for the rest of you, you're like, oh, man, all this like emotion stuff. Oh, come on. I don't want to deal with that. But I'm just going to ask you to come along this journey this summer because we're going to take a look at these psalms and try to see not only what God is wanting to teach us, but the beauty of the emotion that he wants us to experience as well. And Psalm 2 is a beautiful psalm. It's actually a continuation of Psalm 1. So if I was a more organized and put together pastor, we would have done Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 back to back, but that did not happen, and that's okay. So just pretend with me like it did, but instead we just took a little detour to Psalm 103 last week, and now we're back into Psalm 2. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's just how we roll at Rock Prairie. So just go with me on this. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together actually uh, make up the introduction to the entire book of Psalms. Now in Psalm chapter 1, which uh, we saw two weeks ago, we saw there are two kinds of people in the world. Do you remember the two kinds of people that we saw in Psalm chapter 1? There are the righteous and the, you can say this one out loud, wicked. There you go. Very, you guys are just on it this morning. The righteous and the wicked. And we saw uh, two uh, metaphors to describe the two kinds of people. The righteous are like a tree, right? It's planted by a stream of water and they're bearing fruit in their season, in their time. But it says, not so the wicked. Do you remember what it says? They're like what? Somebody say it. Chaff. Good job. The wicked are like chaff, which just blow away. It's good for nothing. I, I uh, have this coffee roaster. I roast coffee in it sometimes, and uh, it's got like this drum in it, and then it's kind of it's like a microwave type thing, and you put the coffee beans in it, and you push the buttons, and then when it's done, the thing is just filled with the chaff from the beans, and if you breathe in it the wrong way, it just like comes out and makes a big mess, and I got to vacuum our whole kitchen, and uh, that's what chaff is, just like nothing, right? It's just like worthless. It just goes wherever the wind blows. So the metaphor is clear. You want to be like the righteous, right? You want to be like the tree. You don't want to be like 
the chaff. Well, Psalm 2 continues this imagery, talking more in detail about who the wicked are specifically and who the righteous are specifically. And so we're supposed to take those things together. And we'll get into that more at the end of the sermon this morning. Psalm 2 is also a messianic psalm, which means that it's a psalm that speaks of the coming Messiah, which makes it really cool for us because uh, when this psalm was written by uh, King David, when he wrote it, it was written about things that had not yet been fulfilled, but he wrote it from the perspective that they had been fulfilled, and now we see them as being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we get to read this psalm, these messianic psalms, we get to read them with these eyes that see and understand that this is talking about Jesus. Now this psalm that we're going to see this morning has four sections and each one of them is made up of three different verses and each of these sections should evoke in us a completely different mood. So I like to use the analogy of like a, like a TV camera, and it's going to zoom in on four different scenes for us. So we're going to have the first three verses are one scene that we're going to see. And then the camera's going to pan over, and it's going to be a completely different scene in the second movement, and then the third movement, and then the fourth movement, if that makes sense. And so what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at each of these sections together, and hopefully we're going to behold some beauty uh, that will show us more about who God is. So with all that by way of introduction, please now look with me at the first part of Psalm chapter 2. It says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together or conspire together, depending on your translation. They, con they conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The first thing we see in, the section, in this section is that the world rebels. Like I said, Psalm 2 is a continuation of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 talks about the way of sinners. And now Psalm 2 shows us what the way of sinners really is. And it's a big deal. The way of sinners is a conspiracy by the nations, by all peoples, to rebel against the authority of God himself. They want to throw off his authority completely. So what do they do? Because they find themselves under his authority. What do they do? They rage they rebel, they make plots, they conspire together. They're not going to take it. They're not going to take God telling them how to live. They're going to break free of their chains and live however they want. It says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And we're not going to let God have any sort of say over our lives. And so they rage and they conspire and they plot. And I don't know about you, but like the image that comes to my mind is like a bunch of big dogs like barking and yapping and trying. Maybe they're in a fence in the backyard and they're trying to get out. If you ever like gone on a run through neighborhoods in Tipton or walked through Tipton, like 
I don't know what it is. Everyone, nobody has one dog. Everyone has two or three dogs minimum, it seems like. And so like every third house, you're walking and all of a sudden you're just, right? And they start, and they want to get, and you're like, I hope that fence is tall enough because it doesn't look tall enough to me, right? That's kind of what happens as you walk through the neighborhoods here in Tipton. And that's kind of the picture that I see here. It's a picture of mankind's rebellion against God. Like, I don't want to be in this fence. I don't want anyone to tell me where I can be and what I can do. I want to live however I want. And so we rage and we plot and we like, conspire together. How are we going to break away from the uh, bondage, so to speak, of following the Lord? This is mankind's rebellion against God. And that's exactly what it is. This is a rebellion <laughs> And it's a rebellion that every single one of us was born into because of the sin of Adam. This describes each and every one of us. You need to understand this if you're going to understand the gospel. I think there's sometimes when people think they understand the gospel, but they miss it because they don't understand the depth of the rebellion of their hearts that was set against a holy God. We saw uh, our brother Andy um, coming to grips with the reality of the gospel of our rebellion. We saw him reading that verse and breaking down emotionally, and I'm getting emotional as well, that every single one of us can say we are the worst of sinners. God didn't leave us there, and that's the good news. But we need to understand, if we're going to understand the gospel, if we're going to follow Jesus, we first need to understand the nature of who we are apart from God, which is that we are a people in rebellion. And this is true of every single person who has ever lived, whether you're born in Tipton, whether you're born in a penthouse in uh, New York City, or whether you're born and live in some of these like extreme remote villages that we saw in Guatemala, it's true of every single one of us. We were born into a full rebellion against God. We fight against him. We don't want him to rule over us, and we conspire together to throw off the chains that we feel like are bonding us because of uh, somebody might have an authority over us. So this is the first picture that we see. The nations, the people of the earth, this is a worldwide rebellion against God. Do we see that? This is where the psalmist is zooming in to show us the nations raging and rebelling against a holy God. So what is God's response to all of this? What is God's response to this worldwide rebellion against his authority? Is he shaking in his boots? Is he afraid? Is he like me walking past that house saying, boy, I hope that those dogs don't get out, right? Is he worried? No. What does he do? What's it say? He laughs. So the world rebels, but God laughs. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Or if you're like me and didn't quite know what that means, uh, if you have the CSB, it says the Lord ridicules them. He laughs. Why does God laugh at this worldwide rebellion? Because he's not in danger in the least. Right? And so now we go from this picture of these like big scary dogs in a backyard to actually a couple of dogs that are just on a leash. And they're not big scary dogs, they're like these tiny ridiculous dogs. Who has a tiny ridiculous dog? Raise your hand if you have a tiny ridiculous dog. Yeah, we have a couple. 
Like you're fitting your like, purse or something. It's like, what in the world? So now, instead of these scary dogs, you have these tiny, ridiculous dogs that are yapping and they're on a leash. And the guy holding the leash is like uh, Rob Gunn or, or me, you know, one of the bodybuilders in our church, one of the big, strong people. <laughs> this isn't a scary situation, is it? It's laughable. What do those dogs think that they're going to do? Even if they get off the leash, they're not going to do anything. And they're not going to get off the leash. He who sits in the heavens laughs. That dog can yap and yap all he wants, but he's not getting anywhere. This is the nature of our rebellion against God. There's like two sides to it. On one side, it's just laughably silly. Because what are we going to do? But on the other side, it's deadly serious. It's deadly serious. So while he laughs at the silliness of the rebellion, he doesn't stay laughing because it's not a joke. Our rebelling against God is not a joke. And the next words out of his mouth are literally terrifying. Verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So all of a sudden, things change. The whole tone changes because these kings, these nations, all these people conspiring together in a worldwide rebellion against God, guess what? They're all terrified. What are they scared of? The word of God. As he speaks, they're terrified. Why? What is the word of God? It's the message of the gospel. It's the message of Jesus Christ himself. They're terrified because of what he says. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So you want to be the king? Guess what? It's too late. I have established my throne forever. It's already happened. It's over. So now you have to decide how you're going to respond to that. Because I've set my king on Zion. And he's not going to be moved. So we see the nations rebelling in the first stanza. We see God's response is laughter at the ridiculousness of their rebellion. And then the terrifying words to the nations to say, I have already set my king on the throne. And now we're going to move into movement three. And guess what? The king's going to speak. We're going to hear now the words of this king who we know is Jesus. We're going to hear these words that he speaks Listen to what he says, verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the messianic king reveals that he's been given a message from God. What's that message? You are my son. You're my son. Now, you're going to have to hang with me here. This is really cool, what we're about to see. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a really important passage of Scripture. Does anyone know? This is kind of this is a tough one. Does anyone know why 2 Samuel chapter 7 is an important passage of Scripture? Does anyone know? God makes a covenant with somebody. Who does he make a covenant with? It starts with a D. And he wrote this psalm. David, very good. Yep. 
God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is actually an important thing to commit to memory because this is when God promises David that his throne is going to rule forever and that the one coming after him in his line would be the Messiah who would rule forever. So this is the Davidic covenant, it's called. And in verse 14, God says to David about this king, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a what? What does it say on your screen? A son. A son. So he's promising that this is going to happen. That there would be a son who would reign forever. And so now in this psalm, David is kind of reflecting from the perspective of this son, which he still didn't really understand, but he's reflecting from this perspective of the son, of hearing these words from God the Father, you are my son. And then we can fast forward a really long time, and there's this uh, engaged woman named Mary, young lady. She's a virgin, and she's visited by an angel, and she's told that she would miraculously conceive a son, that she would name Jesus, and he would be called what? The Son of the Most High. Well, then we can fast forward a few more years, and Jesus is being baptized, and he's raised out of the water, and two things happen. What's the first thing that happens when Jesus is baptized? The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And then what's the second thing that happens? A voice calls out. What does he say? What does God the Father quote to Jesus as he's being descend, as the Spirit is descending on him? What does he quote? Psalm chapter 2. You are my son. And then he quotes Isaiah 42, in whom I am well pleased. But that's not all. Like three verses later in Matthew, Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And Satan is throwing out all these questions toward Jesus. And he's questioning something specific about Jesus. He's not questioning his kingship. He's not questioning his authority. He's questioning his sonship. He says, if you are really the son, then uh, throw yourself off this building and see if the angels catch you. If you're really the son, turn these stones into bread. He's questioning the sonship of Jesus. What had Satan shaking in his boots about Jesus? The fact that he was the son. Well, that's not all either. Fast forward again to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. This is one of the great passages about Jesus in all of Scripture, where the author of Hebrews is saying that there has never been anyone like Jesus. There's never been a man born that was any, that even close to Jesus. Not even the angels can hold a candle to, whom, to who Jesus is. And what does the author of Hebrews quote to show above everything else that Jesus is the greatest being in the history of the universe? What does he quote? What do you think? Psalm chapter 2. It says this. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? None. Not even the angels can compare to who Jesus is. So this verse here in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which is weak, it's easy to miss, right? I've read this psalm in my uh, devotional reading a, a while back and uh, just kind of, yeah, Jesus is the son, right? You just read it and move on. 
This is one of the key hinge points in all of Scripture. When God the Father tells Jesus, you are my son, he is fulfilling this promise he made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and confirming this is the king who will reign and rule forever in his line. It's amazing. And this son is going to receive an inheritance unlike any inheritance any son has ever received, which is an inheritance of the nations. Look at verse 8. He says, ask of me, this is Jesus talking about what God the Father said to him from the perspective of David. He says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So he's saying, all these nations that we just saw that were rebelling a few verses before, all these nations who are trying to conspire together to overthrow your authority, guess what? They're rightfully yours. And here's the scary part. They're rightfully yours to subdue by any means necessary. Whether they're subdued by coming to him in faith or whether they're subdued by, um, by um, being overthrown by an iron rod. It says they'll be broken like a clay pot against an iron rod. I'm now an expert in uh, geology. I got a D on my final exam in geology in college. So I don't like, you know, there's the material density and hardness and all these kinds of things. I don't know any of that, but I do know if you can be on the side of the clay pot or the iron rod, I know I want to be on the side of the iron rod, right? That clay pot is not going to do very well. I was like this close, you guys missed out. I was like this close to having a clay pot and an iron rod and showing you what would happen up here. But I just thought, no, I probably shouldn't do that. But you can just imagine uh, what would happen to that clay pot. Also, if I swung and missed, it would have just ruined the whole thing, so I didn't want to risk it. It's not going to go well for the clay. The nations rebel, but their rebellion is laughable. So God sets up his son as a king, and he's going to reign over their, those nations. He will be victorious, whether they want to submit to him or not. So where does that leave us, then? Because that is not necessarily great news for all of us who are we're in rebellion. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave you? Well, this is the wonderful part. I love the ending to this psalm. Movement one, the camera's focused on the raging and rebelling kings and nations. Movement two, we're focused on God the Father laughing at their rebellion. Movement three, the son tells us that he's been promised all these nations as his inheritance. And now movement four, we're actually turning back to the kings and rulers. But they're hearing something now. They're getting a message. So what message did God give to these kings and nations and rulers who are living out complete and total rebellion, raging and conspiring against God? What was his message? What did he give them? What message would you have given them? What message do you give them even now? Here's where I'm going to ask you to kind of examine your own heart, church. Honestly, think about it. How do you think about the people that you imagine are the most fundamentally opposed to God? What do you think about or 
say about or post on Facebook about people that you see, whether they're celebrities or politicians or just groups of people, people that you see as living in active rebellion and undermining the authority of God? What's your heart posture toward those people? What's the message in your heart? Is it a message of judgment? Just wait till you see what's coming to you. Is it a message of self-righteousness? There's something very human about wanting to be vindicated from people that you see as your enemies, right? And we're going to actually see that as we continue on in the Psalms. But the message that God delivers to the kings and rulers who are actively rebelling against him isn't a message of mocking, but it's a plea for repentance, and it's an unbelievable demonstration of his grace. It's a demonstration of his grace as it's revealed. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So he's warning them of the coming judgment. We need to to understand this, church. The judgment will come. And he's warning them of that. But he's wrapping that in his grace. He says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. He says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Meaning, serve the Lord for this health, with this healthy reverence of who he is and what he's capable of and what's going to happen at the end of the age. He says, kiss the son, which means just acknowledge his authority over you. Quit raging, quit plotting in vain about how you're going to throw off his cords and chains of authority. Submit to it. Rejoice in it. And if you don't, you're going to face his wrath. And then he closes in the same exact way he opens Psalm 1, talking about who the blessed are. That's how we know these are bookend. They're made to be read together. Talking about how it, what it means to be blessed, taking refuge in him. So in Psalm 1, we saw two kinds of people, the wicked and the righteous. Now in Psalm 2, we see them. Who are these Who are these? chaff-like, good-for-nothing, wicked people. It's the people rebelling against the authority of God, which was true of every single one of us at one time. Who is the righteous man? Well, Psalm 2 tells us who the one true righteous man is. It's the son. But guess what? Through him, you can be a son too by taking refuge in him. So Psalm 1 tells us not to be like the wicked. Psalm 2 humbles us by reminding us that each one of us was at one time walking in the counsel of the wicked and standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of scoffers. Psalm 1 tells us to be like the righteous. Psalm 2 reminds us that Jesus is the faithful one who made a way for each of us to be sons and daughters of the king. And as we close this morning, I want to close uh, by sharing a story uh, from our Guatemala trip. And I don't want to take anyone's thunder next week of what they're going to say. But we were up, uh, and I've talked to you before about this place that we visit in Guatemala where there is... uh, a big old uh, a Catholic church right next to this place where people uh, practice witchcraft. And so they go and they, 
they put their curses on people and then they go into this church and uh, ostensibly worship Jesus. But it's even worse than that. At this front of this Catholic church, they have this big statue of Jesus on the cross where people come in and they just, they want to rub this, this statue because they believe that actually rubbing the statue is going to give them power. It's just this place of wickedness. It's a place where these witch doctors will come in and just take full advantage of people who are in extreme poverty and they'll take all their money so that they can perform these rituals. There's also, I think, real demonic activity that happens kind of in and through what these witch doctors are doing. And so it's really, as you're there, you're just kind of uh, overwhelmed with just the darkness of this place. And Les, who's the uh, head of the ministry, was telling us about a time when he was up there with a team and one girl on one of the teams was just so overwhelmed by all the darkness, she said, I'm just going to pray that an earthquake comes and wipes this whole place away. And he said, well, first, don't pray that yet. Wait till we get down off the mountain so we don't get caught up in the earthquake as well. But he said, secondly, that's not the attitude that we're called to have when it comes to these things, even in the darkest of the dark places. He told a story to this girl about how he had, um, he and his wife, they have a lot of Christian schools, and so that one of the schools was completely filled up with students, and that knew there were still a few students who wanted to join, and so he and his wife were at the school praying about what they should do about the situation that was, uh, that they were all filled up, and so they were kind of talking about what to do, and as they're praying, they see uh, a, one of the witch doctors walking down the road with, their fam- with his family, I'm like, Surely this guy can't be um, coming to talk to us. And he gets closer and gets closer and they realize he's, this witch doctor is coming to talk to us. And they say, what in the world does this guy want with us? What kind of trouble are we going to have? And he said, I've heard great things about your school, the witch doctor did, and I want to enroll my kids into your school. And so they said, right there, we decided we needed to have a policy in place where if any witch doctors ever want to enroll their kids in the school, we're going to let them enroll their kids in our school. Amen. What's the attitude that we have toward people that we see as even living in the darkest of dark, even undermining the authority of God, even gleefully, even laughably? What's the attitude that we have? He said the ultimate story is that our attitude is that we need to pray for hearts to be changed. So this morning as we close, I want to ask, like, maybe you personally are in rebellion against God right now. Maybe you have never come to the Lord in repentance. Maybe like you're like, yep, verses 1 to 3 are me. That's me right now. If that's you, you need to repent and you need to take refuge in the Son. And know his grace that is just overflowing and abounding for you. Praise God for that grace. Maybe... Uh, you've come to the Lord, but maybe, and I, I say maybe, but I'm sure this is true of every single one of us, that there's parts of your heart that are still in rebellion against his authority. Even though you've come to the Son, maybe you're still raging and conspiring in certain ways because you're just not going to let God have that part of your heart. Maybe there's just a darkness in your heart that you need to offer over to the Lord and say, God, I've been clinging to this. I need to give this over to you. If that's you, you need to take care of that and come to the Lord. And repent and ask him, God, change my heart, change my desires. I want to want you. Bring me more in line with the Son. So I want to just invite you this morning, if that's you, like to search your heart and say, where, where do I have these things that I'm still in rebellion against God? Maybe you have hatred in your heart towards someone who's in rebellion without even recognizing it like that girl saying, Let's just, God, just, just wipe this off with an earthquake. 
I understand that feeling, but that's not as God's ambassadors how we're called to live because when we say that, we're actually misunderstanding the fact that every single one of us was in rebellion in one way or another. Every single one of us can say, I am the foremost of all sinners. So if that's you, remember the gospel and praise God that he didn't send an earthquake to wipe you out. He sent a flood one time, rightly and justly, and he promised to never do that again. Instead, he sent us the Son. Praise God for the Son. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we uh, come to you this morning and we just thank you for the gospel. We thank you that even as we were raging and plotting in vain in our own hearts, God, that you did not give us what we deserved in that moment, but instead you unthinkably sent us your son. Not only did you send us your son, you sent him to die so that we, the ragers and plotters in vain, could live. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for loving us while we were yet sinners. God, help us to have eyes to see those parts in our heart that are still in rebellion against you. And help us, God, to have eyes to see who you are calling us to love in that same way, God. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has not yet given their whole life to you, I just pray that they would do that in Jesus' name. They would repent and they would follow you and know the freedom that is found in living under your authority, God. God, you are so good to us and we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.